Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we are starting a new section of the podcast on California and the Civil War. I'm very excited to bring you this extended series that includes interviews with historians about these subjects. We've already had one historian talk about it, Dr. Kevin Waite, but we have many more amazing interviews about this complex history that's often ignored within the historiography of the Civil War. So, but without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. As I said, we're starting a new series this week, a series that is going to stretch for many forthcoming episodes focused on the Civil War and California's relationship to it. This is, to say the least, a big topic. One of those topics that could be a whole course or even a whole podcast. To try to capture all the subtleties in every facet would be both beyond the scope of what I'm trying to do, but also not that enjoyable to listen to, frankly. Curation is the name of the game here. And in each of these episodes, I aim to pick topics, vignettes, and characters that embody the themes that a survey course on California and the Civil War would hope to cover. When we look at the broad scope of U.S. history, the West was always the problem. Not the problem. The problem, the cause, the source of the Civil War was always slavery, from the very beginning and all the way through Appomattox and beyond. But if the U.S. had not grown... If the Louisiana Purchase, the Mexican-American War, the Gold Rush had not happened, if the ideas of manifest destiny had not completely imbued the culture of the United States, if pioneers and trappers had not followed western trails, guided by indigenous people through basins and ranges, if all that had not occurred, the U.S. and the U.S. was content to occupy some space in and around the original 13 colonies, there may not have been enough fuel for the fire, which, admittedly, was already burning at a steady pace, to become a full-scale conflagration. It's possible, emphasis on possible, that the Civil War may not have engulfed the entire Union and threatened its integrity. As you all know, I love to talk about counterfactuals. The benefit of them is to think about how both that much of what we think was determined is actually highly contingent. But it also forces us to see how all the different variables at work influence the cause and outcome of historical events. Now, let's go back in time for a little bit. As the U.S. grew and slavery threatened the expansion, there were a series of compromises made between the slavery contingent in the South and the free states in the North. The first major compromise, not included in the Constitution, was the Missouri Compromise of 1820. The Louisiana Purchase forced the question of determining slavery's existence in territories and states. This Missouri Compromise was a simple and clear compromise that would last until the Kansas-Nebraska Act effectively made it null. Congress determined that the best way to avoid conflict was to maintain balance between the free and slave states for them to be of equal number. Now, when the Missouri Territory first applied for statehood in 1817, that caused a problem, but it was pushed off. It was not actually taken up with serious consideration until 1819. The rancor over the issue hit full tilt when a representative from New York tried to add an anti-slavery amendment to this state admission. This proposed amendment to the legislation created a potential powder keg 
that was thankfully disfused when Maine applied for statehood in December of 1819. Thus, they were able to keep the balance between the free and slave states in equilibrium. And they also added a further amendment to create a line of separation between free and slave states of the 3630 latitude. Henry Clay, the famous congressperson, served as the compromise doula, if you will, helping to deliver this through Congress and working hard to weed controversial issues out of the bill in order for it to pass more easily. Now let's fast forward a little bit. The next major issue emerged after the Mexican-American War, when the United States acquired, through force, large parts of the western half of the United States. This is when California emerged prominently in the national debate. Shortly after the gold rush and the American discovery of the vast and bountiful landscape of California, there was an instant push to incorporate California into the Union which led to a new compromise, the Compromise of 1850. Just like the Missouri Compromise before it, this one was spearheaded again by Henry Clay, who sought to maintain the precedent set by the Missouri Compromise by trying to keep the number of free and slave states equal. Instead, the course struck by this compromise set the stage for the fight that would happen in Kansas-Nebraska Act and the effects of an updated version with teeth of the Fugitive Slave Act. The precedent of popular sovereignty in deciding whether slavery would be legal, which came into existence ipso facto by not determining whether New Mexico or Arizona should become freer sl slave states, but left it up to popular sovereignty, to people voting on whether they think it should be uh, allowed or not. The wins for the northern anti-slavery contingent were the balance of free to slave states tips towards them, toward the free state advantage, while the southern contingent garnered what they'd been hoping for, a fugitive slave act with teeth. To have a stick to be able to retrieve runaway slaves was sufficient compensation for the loss of the balance between free and slave states. Interestingly, probably the most important outcome was that aforementioned precedent of popular sovereignty, which is what would ultimately light the flame of violence that would start in the Midwest, spread outward, and eventually engulf the entire United States. To assume that California's status as a free state meant that California was a progressive stronghold like it is today is in fact a faulty assumption and an anachronism that is understandable in some respects. In fact, while California decided to ban slavery, after heated debate of course, it also simultaneously tried to ban black residents themselves. The governor of California, Peter Burnett, said this about black people in California, quote, It could be no favor and no kindness to permit free blacks to settle in the state. While it would be a most serious injury to us, had they been born here and acquired rights in consequence, I should not recommend any measures to expel them, but the object is to keep them out." End quote. There are many fears about black residents. White miners, who were a powerful group in California, were worried that potential black miners would compete with them in the minefields, viewing the situation as some kind of zero-sum game, when in reality, of course, the bigger competition for control and power would be due to the presence of capital, concentrated wealth, and corporate interests. This resulted in black people being forcibly expelled from certain towns and regions. 
While a ban itself never actually came to fruition, the issue was a persistent topic in California, which tells us a lot about the general sentiment in California itself. Nonetheless, pro-slavery politicians and government officials who were not able to expel or prevent black people from coming were certainly present and influential in state and local politics. Pro-slavery Democrats in, were known in California as the chivalry or shivs. The shivs beat out for control of the California politics at the local and state level, the Know-Nothing Party, the other major political force in California. The Know-Nothing Party was both anti-slavery as well as anti-immigrant. This in contrast with the Southern-influenced wing of the Democratic Party that was firmly pro-slavery. The Southern-influenced wing of this party was led by William M. Gwynn, who we've covered in an interview in detail with Dr. Kevin Waite. Gwynn was born in Gallatin, Tennessee. His father served as a chaplain under Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans, and he had his son work as a secretary to Andrew Jackson. After studying medicine, Gwynn pivoted to serving as a marshal for Mississippi before being elected to office in the same state. He moved to California and made millions in the mines before being elected a senator for California, where he played a major role in expansion, as well as the previously mentioned in another episode, Land Commission, that tried to resolve some of the Spanish and Mexican land ownership disputes. Given the political infighting going on in California about slavery, as well as the desire to expel black people from the state, led the Confederate President Jefferson Davis to assume that California would either stay out of the conflict entirely when the Civil War broke out, or engage in a civil war within itself. Instead, California contributed more than 17,000 troops to the Union cause, which of a population of nearly 400,000 was a very high percentage given the conflicted politics of the state. While there were some that enlisted with the Confederate Army, and we're just talking hundreds here, that number was so negligible compared to the number enlisted with the Union Army that it's barely worth mentioning. Many of those who fought for the North were better equipped, in fact, than their Eastern counterparts for battle, given their experiences on the Western frontier. Additionally, many of these enlisted folks from California had experiences roughing it and living in the outdoors. In terms of assignments, California enlisted soldiers served in a variety of capacities. The first and mo most important being replacements for fallen comrades in the Eastern Divisions. Additionally, many enlisted men from California served in various other capacities, including support roles like protecting mail routes in the Western states, building forts and roads, functioning as army engineers, mapping territories in the unsurveyed West, and, most importantly, safeguarding precious supply shipments. Beyond activities served in the purpose of the larger conflict, Union Californian troops also had to police internal issues within the state of California. As mentioned before, there were many Confederate sympathizers in California, particularly in the Los Angeles area. Many of those with the wrong sensibilities were rounded up and sent to places like Alcatraz, where they would wait out, the entirety of the conflict. Probably the most featured and ambitious military expedition that involved Californian troops was an expedition led by James Henry Carleton, 
when he marched thousands of troops from California to El Paso, Texas. The purpose of the journey was to prevent Confederate troops from making forays into the New Mexican territories. The show of force worked. When he arrived at the Rio Grande after a series of battles in Arizona, the Confederate threat was mostly eliminated. In fact, the Confederate army would turn out to be the least of their concerns. Instead, Californian troops would spend most of their time fighting indigenous people who wanted to expel both the Union and Confederate armies. Many of the battles, and I say that word with the thickest possible quotation marks, mirrored the massacres that occurred in the 1850s in California, where women and children were as much the targets as were the fighting men. Many historians have chosen to include these particular atrocities within the larger genocide project that took place inside California, even though these took place in the southwest of California. Southeast, excuse me. Beyond the western battles, some of the small units of fighters did in fact make it east and participate in some of the most famous battles in that theater, including the defense of Washington, D.C., Shenandoah Valley, and the siege of St. Petersburg, among others. More important than troops, though, was the California gold. The vast wealth accumulated from the gold rush and resulting capitalist industrialization in California fueled Union efforts and allowed the U.S. government to spend in ways the Confederate Army could not, as well as apply for loans from other places. At certain points in the conflict, troops were encouraged to focus on mining, seeing the money as more important than their efforts on the battlefield. Additionally, the wealth of California needed to be protected from Confederates who would want a piece of that to support the Confederacy. Glenna Matthews said so eloquently that this was the dawn of California as the ATM. With all of this support, including troops, resources, funds, and gold, California moved slowly toward supporting Lincoln and his war. Thomas Starr King, a Unitarian minister, among others, worked the podium and platform to make the moral case for the Union which seems to translate into a change in opinion as evidenced by the near 30% increase in votes for Abraham Lincoln from the 1860 election to the 1864 election. Hopefully, this brief overview of California's involvement in the coming crisis and resulting civil war has persuasively shown you that California's role was both prominent and important. We cannot understand, ultimately, the Civil War without understanding the role of the West, and in particular, California. Going forward, we are going to zoom in on certain moments and individuals to better understand that role that California played. Hopefully, this episode has given you that 20,000-foot perspective and context you will need as we get more granular in the weeks to come. We'll see you next time.